So, uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to be, but there is a lot to cover before we get there, so hold on, spider monkey, we're going to get started. Um, I'm just excited, first and foremost, to be here, be back with you guys. As I was getting ready for this morning, um, I kind of realized I haven't, it's it's been since Thanksgiving that we've had kind of a regular, consistent, going through the book of Luke, hanging out together. Uh, we've had some weeks off. We've done a retreat up at Fort, uh, some mountain in Cleveland. Like we've just done a, a bunch of different things. And so it's good to be consistent, to be back here. Um, now, if you've been at the branch for any certain amount of time, you know that everything in here feels way different than it normally does, right? So even now that we're consistent, we're changing things. Um, that's probably one of the best part about being a three-year-old church is we can change things without getting chewed out by the deacons and the old people that love their way of doing things, Right. Um, so that is just my passive aggressive jab to say, don't complain about what we're doing. We're just experimenting. Sound good? Um, but seriously, one of the things that we did change this morning that it's going to be awkward to probably get used to, well, two things. Um, one, we, we set up some rows instead of tables. Um, that's very intentional because we, we want to be closer together. Um, as we've been setting it up, it's, we've just felt so spread out. And so we basically cut the room in half by getting rid of some tables and putting some rows um, so I know that's a little different. The other thing is the lights. Um, we have fought. So Easter will be a year that we've been Sunday mornings in the gym, and we have fought the entire year of how to light in here better um, so that we can see scriptures. Because when we teach the Bible, there's two verses that we're going to be looking at that I want you to see, I want you to underline, I want you to remember so that it's not my opinion or any of the guys that preach. It's not our opinion. It's straight from scripture. Um, but with the lights down, you can't see scripture. Um, and there's index cards on all the seats. We want, not that anything I say is special, but we really do think that there's power in the proclamation of the gospel. So we want you guys to be able to take notes, to remember, to wrestle with things. But with the lights off, no one could really do it. And we didn't want to spend any more time or money trying to figure out how to do it. Um, try to put lipstick on a pig. We're in a gym. So let's just embrace the fact that we're in a gym. We're here. Look around just real fast. It's, it's a gym. It's nothing pretty. Um, so that's why we're going to start turning the lights on for teaching. Um, there's no super fancy faders for this thing. So it's going to just on and off really bright. Um, sorry, not sorry. That's just what we're doing. Sound good? Um, the last thing, and you should have grabbed one of these or been handed one of these on your way in. If not, there's plenty on the welcome table. <clears throat> but January 6th, the elder staff and interns, we kind of set the vision for what it looks like for the next 10 years. Um, So the elders uh, met on Friday night, Saturday morning. We established the 10-year vision and the three-year strategies to help us get there. Um, Staff and interns came in and helped us say, because of where we want to be in 10 years and the strategy in three years, what does it look like for one year and then the next 90 days? Um, So here it is on paper. I'm going to fly through it really fast. Uh, But here's what I want. This is going to go out on email. This is going to be available next weekend, um, next Sunday. But the next Sunday, which is the 4th, we're going to have some Q&A time during the service. Um, So you can ask any question you want about the church, the vision, the direction, where we're going. Um, Here's the way we're going to kind of do it is through communication cards. Um, So you have to sign your name on the card. 
Um, that way you can't just roast us and then leave. Don't be a coward. Um, and then also, if we don't have time to answer all the questions, um, that way we have your information so we can follow up throughout the week, grab some coffee, and talk about where we're going, where we feel the Lord is leading us. But um, big picture, and I think it's going to be on the screen uh, if you didn't grab a piece of paper. Um, <clears throat> within the next decade, within the next 10 years, um, we, our vision, where we feel like God is leading us to, is to develop a network of high-impact churches, um, 10 of them. So we're going to have 10 churches to be part of the branch network and spread across college communities within the southeast. Now, let me just stop here because that sounds incredible and hard and there's tons of questions within there. Um, but what I don't want us to do is stop there. Um, the last sentence to us is the most important sentence. Um, that we're, the way we're going to do that is through making disciples every two years. So we're going to raise up incredible leaders through discipleship to be multiplied every two years. So if you do the math, if we're actively doing that every two years, we should have way more than 10 churches. What we're going to do with these people is encourage them to go be missionaries, to go um, move to different cities, countries, states, uh, and be disciple makers in those locations too. So one avenue is going to be through church planning, but bigger picture is if we're making disciples who make disciples, the possibility is endless of what that's going to look like. Um, but where we're, I mean, we are the church, um, we believe in the local church, so we're going to put our energy into planting more churches and college communities. Um, so what does that mean? I was kind of chuckling to myself because <clears throat> there's about three or four of you that walked in when I was standing at the front door, and I'm chuckling going, oh man, you're number five. Like, you're going to be the fifth church that we send out. You're number six. You don't know it yet, but there's a lot of church planters in this room right now, and it's just encouraging to watch and kind of uh, joke about that within myself. So if you see me giggling by myself, that's what's happening. Um, just don't, don't be weirded out. Um, so, and like I said, I'm going to fly through this really quickly. If you have questions, uh, talk to one of the elders. If you're an elder, raise your hand real fast just so you can see them. Um, and then one is skiing in Colorado like a bum. And so uh, one of us, uh, and we can give some clarity, but then uh, the fourth is where we're really going to press it. Um, so what does that mean? If we're going to do that in 10 years, what does that mean for us in the next three years? <clears throat> Completed leadership pipeline through missional communities. Raise your hand if you're a part of a missional community. So how are we going to raise up leaders and make disciples? It's through missional community. So within three years, we want that pipeline to be um, crystal clear, good, reproducing leaders. Um, we're going to multiply from one to three churches within the next three years. Um, so that means three total. So there'll be the branch Dahlonega plus the branch somewhere and the branch somewhere. Um, and just a point of clarity too, when we say 10 churches, we don't mean that we, Branch Dahlonega, are, are going to start 10 churches. We might start <clears throat> four or five, and then those churches are going to turn around and start churches, and those churches are going to turn around and start churches. Um, so multiply from one to three. Develop a branch network team that offers oversight and leadership to all the different network churches. Um, and because of that, establish a revenue stream of $125,000 to keep the network going. So this might be through coffee shops. This might be through random businesses. Um, this might be through somebody just donating a ton of money to the network. But um, basically having a central staff network that helps to oversee and to support all the local churches that we start. Um, and then I'll stop here. Um, because you'll, you'll hear more about this in the closing announcements, but um, how do we get there? So how 10-year vision, what do we want to accomplish in a year that will help us get there is to have every single one of you involved in a missional community. It's as simple as that, that if all of our pipeline discipleship process 
takes, takes place in missional communities and DNAs, well then in one year we want all of you guys to be a part of a missional community, to be a part of DNA, and you'll hear more about that later. So uh, make sure you take one of these, take it home, read over it, study, talk about it, think about it, uh, and then we'll have some Q&A within the next two weeks. Sound good? All right, Luke 12 is where we're going to be, and, and there's a funny, uh, I say funny, I don't know how funny it is, but um, kind of a funny thing that takes place here with Jesus, um, because he's, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is his impending death, so he knows where he's going, he knows he's going to the cross, um, and along the way, he just kind of gets, uh, this is my interpretation, gets fed up with some mischaracterization that's taking place of him. Uh, has anyone ever been mischaracterized? You feel like you've kind of got a wrong reputation when you didn't deserve it. Isn't there just a freedom within like being uh, vindicated of that mischaracterization? Um, so, so here's what I mean. Here's two examples from me. It was about a year ago. My daughter was doing gymnastics, and we had friends and family over, and she was in the floor showing us how to do the bridge. Does anyone know what the bridge is? So you lay on your back, and you put your hands over, and you press up and it looks like a bridge. So we're kind of joking around like, oh, I bet you can't do that. I bet you can't do that. And then it got to me and there was just a unanimous vote across the room that fat boy cannot do a bridge. <laughs> I got offended. So there's me who's six foot, kind of a bigger dude. My brother who's five, six, really skinny dude. So I challenged him to a bridge off in the middle of our den. Any competitive brothers in here? Yes. Okay. Um, so he got to go first lay down, nothing, can never get up. Glory was revealed in that room that morning or that evening. Who did a bridge successfully and perfectly? Bring? It was, it was me, right? Like I felt so vindicated because I was mischaracterized that because of my body type, I couldn't do a bridge. Now I know what you're thinking, uh, do a bridge right now, forget about it. <clears throat> the second time that just really hit me, uh, I was in a, this is a couple years ago, I was in a group of friends, uh, I say friends, it's more acquaintances. We were standing around talking, just a group of guys, and um, I, I don't know if, if any of you guys have experienced this, especially you married dudes, uh, but there's just a, a, a reputation where men get together and just slam on their wives, just kind of make fun of their wives. And so it was just going around the circle, it seemed like, just bashing their wife. Well, my wife, my ball and chain, well, this and that, and I can't ever do this, I can't ever do that. So it got to me, and I had this choice of, like, man, they're totally destroying marriage. Uh, so what then do I do? So when it came to me, and I'm like, mm, I'm, I'm sorry, but my wife is incredible, our marriage is great, and I would rather be with her than you guys anyways. So all that you're talking about that you're missing out, uh, I'm not missing anything by spending time with my wife. Felt as awkward as that. Some good points? Good. Felt as awkward as that tension and then just kind of walked away. And so that's this morning what Jesus is starting to do is um, all these miscommunications and mischaracterizations that are happening of him, he just has to say, wait, 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 just, just stop. This is going to be awkward, but you need to hear this. You need to understand what you think is taking place is not actually taking place. And so what we need to do this morning as we wrestle with it, and honestly, it's the entire reason we're preaching through the book of Luke. Uh, if you're new here, we're, we're spending about two and a half years um, teaching through just one book, just the book of Luke. And, and we've titled this A Meal with Jesus because um, it's said that in, in the book of Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. And we all know that around the table, um, a lot of communication, a lot of clarity, a lot of community takes place 
And so we're just picturing, as we're preaching through Luke, we just want a clear depiction of who Jesus is. That if Jesus is the center and the foundation of our faith, do we really know who he is, what he's done, what he wants to do, what he's trying to accomplish? Do we know his character? Do we know his grace? Do we know his love? And so just like these guys, his disciples and the crowds that were following him, Jesus needed to stop and say, wait, 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 that's not who you think. We're on different pages here, what I'm trying to accomplish. I think for a lot of us in this room this morning, when we study and we read this, we're going to realize maybe we're on different pages. Maybe we've bought into this American Christianity where Jesus is this one way and he's trying to accomplish this one thing. But what we're trying to do and what I think Jesus is trying to do is break all that down and say, no, no, like, I don't care about your politics. I don't care about this. I don't care. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. And there's a mission statement that takes place in Luke 12 that I think is going to rock us to the core. So Luke 12, 49 through 53 is where we're going to be. That rhymed. First Peter 4, if you want to just kind of, you don't have to go there now. Um, that's the other scripture I want us to see. We'll flip over there in a little bit. But Luke 12, picking it up in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth in wood that it would already kindled. I have a, bapti- a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Sounds fun, right? All right, let's pray and we'll dive in. Uh, Father, we just want to know you. Um, Jesus, we want to know your truth, your character, your nature, your love. Father, we, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your text God, this is inspired truth from you. So Jesus, we pray that um, we would get a better picture of you and your nature and your character and what you're trying to accomplish here. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus is using a a bunch of metaphors and and different language that that just to be clear, for clarity's sake, um, let's slow down for a minute, just make sure we know what he's trying to get to. Um, So verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. Um, So this is kind of Jesus' mission statement. I came to. A lot of you, I came to school to get a degree. I got a degree to get a job. My purpose here. And so Jesus just comes out the gate saying, I came to cast fire on the earth. What? So, so what does he mean by fire? There's, there's just a bunch of different interpretations, but the most clear one is that, that he came to judge. Fire is judgment, that Christ came to judge. Now, let me just ask a question before we kind of like, well, Christianity is not supposed to judge, right? But let me just ask a quick question. Can you know truth without judgment? Can you know truth without being judged to something? Can you really know what you look like unless you look in a mirror? So if, if there's no comparison, if there's no judgment, do you understand who you really are? So by Christ coming to say, I'm here to judge, I'm casting a fire 
This is what he means. That he's saying, I've got to judge. I've got to set a standard. I've got to come. And because of this standard, I have to judge. There's got to be a judgment that takes place. So right off the bat, if we have any kind of idea about Jesus and Christianity, uh, not judging, just loving. Everyone's accepted. Everyone's in. Everyone's happy. So straight out the gate, Jesus is going, whoa, wait, you, you mischaracterized this. You don't understand. There's truth in that. But we've got it a little swayed. So let's keep reading. Verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I have a baptism to be baptized with. What he's speaking of is his death, and how great is his distress until it is accomplished. So he is flooded with, I mean, just inundated with um, this feeling of distress until his death takes place. He's literally on his way to Jerusalem. It's inevitable. It's coming. He's walking towards his death and how great is his distress until it's accomplished. But here's where we have to stop and kind of justify judgment and Jesus' death. Because when judgment takes place, when separation takes place, he's saying, I'm not separating you to leave you, but I'm separating those who believe and those who don't believe. And for those that do believe, uh, my death is great. My death is the sacrifice for you to actually live. But we can't, my death makes no sense if we don't understand that you actually need me, that you want to follow me. So I'm separating, I'm here to divide, to see who's following and who's not. So let's keep going. Verse 51. Here's kind of the question, I think, if we were one of his disciples or one in the crowd, we would all get this wrong. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Yes. No. Right? Like that's the one we would have all missed. We, we sing Christmas songs about peace on earth and goodwill to men. So he's asking, um, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Now, this one we'll have to come back to because this is where it gets a, a little messy. But the thought that Jesus was going to unite everyone was just a cultural thing. That Jesus was going to come in. He was going to dismember all the rulers, all these set authorities. He was going to take his place on the throne and bring peace back to this region, back to Israel. So when he's saying, do you think I brought peace? He's saying, do you really think I'm going to overthrow the Roman government and take everything over? No, that's never my plan. The plan was never to overthrow all these rules and authorities and be your king here. My kingdom is greater than Israel. My kingdom is greater than Rome. My kingdom is more than you can fathom. I am ruling a kingdom even though you don't see it. So I'm not here to bring peace among everyone to make everyone love each other. I'm here to actually divide who's with me and who's not. And that's what he says next. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And then he goes on to explain how deep this division is going to run. Mother against father, father against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, which that one's just a no-brainer. Like, of, of course, Jesus, that's going to happen, right? So, so here's where we need to land, and here's where I, I, I hope and I think just even me studying going, gosh, like, what is, what is Jesus really getting at? Fire, division, judgment. What is he actively after? What, why is he saying this? Why is he preaching this? Um, what was said about his character, about his love, that has been so misconstrued that he had to stop and speak in these very clear, uh, almost harsh terms to get everyone back on the same page. Now, you're in Luke 12. Just flip back 10 chapters and go to Luke 2. 
Because this is not the first time that we heard or we've understood that Jesus was coming to divide, that he was coming to separate. This is one example of many more that we could continue to quote in the Old Testament. But Luke 2, verse 34, is very clear in this depiction of Jesus and his separation and his division. Jesus was only a few days old. They brought him into the temple and met this guy named Simeon. And Simeon was an old man that um, God had promised to Simeon that you will not die until you see the Messiah, that I will keep you alive, I will keep you going until um, your eyes have seen the Messiah. So when Jesus walks in, Simeon runs over. There's this beautiful exchange, and Simeon just kind of speaks some, some clarity, some prophecy into what Jesus is going to accomplish. And we'll pick it up in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon, when Jesus was eight days old, says, Listen, here's what Jesus is going to do. He's here to divide. He's here to separate for the rise and the fall of many. That when Jesus comes, he's not going to unite everyone in this hippie kind of lovey-dovey party. But there's going to be a clear separation of who's with him and who isn't. That is the point of Christ's coming. So as these crowds start to gather and as they start to follow him and, and as they keep growing into the tens of thousands, everyone's following Jesus not for who Jesus is and his character, but what he might be able to do for them. And right now there are millions across the churches in America. And I would argue that the majority want nothing to do with Jesus. They just want to stuff. They're here so that they can have a better life, so they can maybe get some more money, so they can get more clarity but they're not here. They don't understand the gospel as far as this is a division, that you're either in or you're out, that you're either with him with everything that you have or you're out. That American Christianity has just embraced this middle ground, take what you want and leave it alone. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, right? Go back to history. Y'all know Thomas Jefferson? Okay, any history majors? Thomas Jefferson would rip scriptures out of the Bible that he didn't like. Mm, no. I'm good. Now, we kind of laugh and mock at that, but we might not be as bold as to rip the pages out, but we ignore a lot, don't we? That when Scripture presses in and controls or tries to control our life, we go, hmm, I'm going to take a little bit, I'm going to leave a little bit. But here's the thing. Has division rooted into your soul first? I mean, has there been moments when you've wrestled with not my will but yours? that this feels right, that, uh, that everyone is doing this, this is the proper way to go, but I, Scripture doesn't let me do that. If Christ has come to bring a division, have you felt that division in your soul first? Have you wrestled with, have you prayed through, have there been things that you wanted to do, but because of where Scripture is and your love for Christ, you say, no, I just can't. Is there a division in your community the crew that you run with, whether it be a missional community, just your friends, your doormates, your neighbors, those that profess Christ, has there been a divide to where you don't look like other communities around you? That because of the love of Christ and how he compels us, there's a difference about us. Even the church, do we look different than? Is there a divide? See, what Jesus is after is there should be a clear divide between the church and the world. 
There should be a clear divide between the community and the world's community. There should be a clear divide between those who follow Christ and those who don't. But in Americanized Christianity, that's rarely true. That our lives compared to non-believers all too often blend together. And so what we're going to try to do is just kind of get to the root of that. Here's, here's one quote that will maybe set us up for it. Those who would reduce Jesus to a sentimental savior of a doting God have not come to terms with the depth of divine passion of the wrath and love of God, which is revealed in Jesus' word, will, and obedience even unto death. So if this divide is not there, it doesn't mean work harder. It doesn't mean try harder. It means we are misunderstanding who Jesus is. That we need to forget all that we know and press into Jesus, his nature, his character, and his love. So there was a couple weeks ago when we went to uh, this, the retreat at a retreat center uh, in Cleveland, and they had books within every uh, room. And so there was a little biography, I say little compared to um, this massive one that I have at home, about a guy named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Anyone ever heard of him? If you haven't, you need to research and do some studying on Bonhoeffer. This dude is just phenomenal. So I might have borrowed the book. I have every intention of returning it one day, <clears throat> but I went ahead and took the book and I'm reading through it, and breaking the test, I, I try to read. I want to be a reader, anyone else, but just, man, I just love, like, movies. And, and anything really other than reading uh, is kind of my cup of tea. So, <clears throat> but this book has been just fascinating, easy to read. So, so if you don't know anything about Bonhoeffer, uh, he was a German that lived from, like, the early, 19, I think, 1904 uh, up into the middle of World War II. And Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, pastor, but also a spy for... Uh, um, and I'll get to that spy, and then ultimately a martyr. And so here's what was going on in Bonhoeffer's life that I think really kind of, uh, maybe not to the extreme of us, but might set the tone for what we're wrestling with this morning. Um, as Nazi Germany, as Hitler was coming more and more to rule, um, Bonhoeffer in the evangelical church of Germany was faced with a decision. Um, Hitler wanted to rule everything. I mean, looking back in history, we can understand this, but one of the ways that he tried to initially attack um, was through the local churches. So he would go into evangelical churches and go, no, listen, uh, God is great, we love God, you keep preaching God, um, but hold Hitler to the same standard. Hold Germany, the roots of Germany, to the same standard. So it's God plus Germany, God plus nation, God plus Hitler. That's what the church means. That's what we need to do. And so at first, there's a big outcry. All the churches were coming together and saying, no, we would never do that. We would never sacrifice. Uh, but as time goes on, more and more churches started to fall into this because they were being attacked, they were being ridiculed, they were being mocked, and pastors had to feed their families. Churches were being broken up over this. The Hitler, I mean, you guys know the story, how awful and horrific Nazi Germany was, and they were starting with the churches. So Bonhoeffer started this thing called the Confessing Church. Um, so they would draw all these churches together that were saying, no, we would never do that. We're never going to back down. We're never going to lay down to, to Nazi Germany. And they even started a seminary. They're trying to train pastors. I'm trying to be the resistance against all of this. And ultimately, that's what got him martyred and killed in the concentration camp because he would never bow down to the culture of the day. So through this process, Bonhoeffer wrote a lot about these two different ideas. 
Um, cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace and costly grace. And, and cheap grace was what was taking place where like, no, I love Jesus and I'm going to follow Jesus, but uh, we're under attack, so we've got to do something. We've got to change the way we believe. We've got to bow down to the economic times of the day just to survive. I mean, we're going to care about the community and paying our bills more than the true proclamation of the gospel. That's what cheap grace. So here's, here's kind of an idea of what cheap grace means. This is straight from Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace bestowed on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring of repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, confession, absolution without personal confession. confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipline, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So as I'm reading Bonhoeffer and all that's taking place in Germany, I'm going, gosh, is that the American church? God, is, is that the branch church? Have we subscribed to this cheap grace where we believe it, but it's not really changing and impacting how we live our life? Now, uh, has anyone ever played the game Jenga? That's not a trick question. You either have or you haven't. Jenga, Anyone? Okay, so um, I have four kids. We play games and we like to have fun. So as I'm thinking through this, I'm kind of a visual guy. Anyone else? As I've been thinking through cheap grace, uh, here's the best, just what keeps coming to my mind. Let's see if I can do this. I probably should have got a little bit more stable of a table, huh? There's probably an illustration in there somewhere. So here's what I mean. There's one more in there, but it's okay. So here's what I mean when I say cheap grace. Here's what this, I think, would actually look like. Come on. It's got to be the bottom one. Hold your applause. Um, so here's what I think cheap grace would look like. The, the, if this Jenga game represents our life, represents who we are, and Jesus starts to speak truth into us that we're studying scripture, um, and he's going, hey, um, we should change the way you view this. We should change. And so uh, we'll go, okay, God, I, I get it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I need to go to church. So look, look, I'm going to remove this from who I am. Um, I know I wasn't going to church, but I'm going to change a certain behavior to appease you. Oh, okay, God, I know I need to read my Bible a little bit. So look, look, here, I'm changing who I am, God, just a little bit at a time. But don't ask me to really do anything different. Don't tear this building that I've built down. Just let me pull a piece every now and then just to get to where I think I should go. Oh, yeah, 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 I need to join a missional community. They keep talking about that. So uh, um, look, I can, I can pull this one. Okay, good, I, I'm good, right? That is what cheap grace means. Don't mess with my freedom. Don't mess with who I am. Just let me pull a few things here and there to maybe live this Christianity that we're called to live. But Bonhoeffer gives another example. It's called costly grace. The sanctuary of God that has to be protected from the world and not thrown to the dogs. It is therefore the living word, the word of God, which speaks as it pleases him. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. 
It comes as a word of forgiveness to a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a person uh, to submit to the yoke of Jesus and follow him. It is a grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So costly grace costs us something. Now, I know that in American Christianity, just America in general, what do we want? Comfort. We don't want to be taken care of. We don't want to be provided for. So what costly grace means is to come to the realization, the harsh realization, that I cannot do this life on my own. That I've tried all that I can. That I've tried to succeed. I've tried to stay right. I've pulled as much sin out of my life, but it still isn't adding up. It's still not equating to this life that I think Christ is asking me to do. There's this constant wrestle within our soul of what it is and what it could be. That you were reading scripture and going, I don't see how these guys live this way in Acts. I don't see how these men left everything to follow Jesus. I don't understand how. I look at me and I'm so concerned about my bills and my kids and this next paycheck that I don't understand how these guys just did everything apart from Christ, or everything because of Christ, left everything else and followed him. They don't get it. There's this disconnect. So costly grace costs us something. And Scripture is pretty clear on this issue, that we either humble ourselves or he will humble us. So if we look at this life, uh, there's basically two options. When we are done trying... When we're saying, I've tried this lazy grace, I've, I've tried to do this on my own, I've tried this cheap grace of how can I still stay comfortable but actually follow Christ, and it's going nowhere, and you're bored with Christianity. You don't understand the church. You don't understand the mission that God has given us. Christ, church just bores you because you're still towing the line. Jesus says you can't tow the line. There's a clear division so what costly grace actually looks like is go, okay, um, God, I'm going to stop removing block after block, and I'm going to go straight to the linchpin, and I'm going to knock my tower down, that I am no more, that if you can do anything with this broken blocks, if you can do anything with me, if you can rebuild me, then do it. And here's two ways to look at it. Like I said, I've, I've met people, I've counseled with people, I've prayed with people that have come to rock bottom on their own. They have literally nowhere else to go. And they say, here's who I am. Because of the decisions I have made, I have nothing left. And if God can still use me, by all means, use me. And, and church, please look at me. I'm pleading with you, don't let your life get to that point. I'm pleading with you to study and understand the counsel of Christ, understand the division that he's preaching, and understand that it's for your joy. That if we could toe the line, if we could stay in the middle, then that's going to end in demise. There's no middle ground. You're either in or you're not. You're either following him or you're following away. So if we're not 100% committed into following Christ, we're starting to fall away. There's no in-between. So what costly grace looks like, it says, hey, I'm pulling this last linchpin that's keeping me standing. That the, if you can do anything with me, my entire life is spread before you, not my will, but yours. Not my desires, your desires. Not my future, your future. This is what costly grace looks like. But church, please hear me. The reward of him 
coming in and starting to rebuild your life and rebuild your soul will bring more joy and satisfaction than you ever could imagine. I mean, let's just think about this for half a second. Do you know what you're doing tomorrow? Maybe, you might have a good idea. But there could be one phone call that happens in three hours that wrecks your whole tomorrow. So wouldn't it make more sense for us to say, everything is yours, you rebuild it however you see fit, because you know that phone call is gonna happen. You are already in tomorrow, so what wisdom do I have when all I can see is the here and now, but I'm gonna trust you to rebuild me because you're there. You're already in the future, you understand everything. Now here's, uh, let me just lay this before you. Costly grace is gonna cost you something. Christianity, to follow Christ, is going to cost you something. To pull the linchpin of your life and watch your life crumble and Christ rebuild it is going to cost you something. That is not a very popular message preached within the American church. It's going to cost you something. So here's just a few scriptures I just want to be clear on. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That the suffering that takes place right now is nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us in eternity. So if we suffer a little bit here, when we get to glory, when we get to heaven, we're going to forget all about it. So like I've mentioned before, we have four kids and a lot of people ask us, man, how did you even survive? And there were nights where I literally thought, I'm, this is it. Like, I'm either going to leave my wife's, I'm going to kill somebody. This is the end of parenting for me. And the people are asking us and we're looking back going, gosh, like I know it was bad, but I don't really remember the hard times. All I remember is the good. I remember watching my daughter run up and give me a hug this morning. That's what I remember. Not the night where they didn't sleep at all and I started drawing on the wall to bring happiness to me. Right? Not the night that I punched through sheetrock because I was so angry I had to take, I didn't really do that, but, or maybe I did. Hmm. Right? So we, we can notice that. I mean, some of you guys are starting to graduate. You're starting to um, get into your careers, and it's the same way. In the moment, studying for all these finals, you're going, this is the worst thing ever. In two years, you're not going to remember that moment. So the suffering that we think that we feel in two years, when we get to eternity, we're never going to remember it. Here's the other side of it, Matthew 10, 38 through 39. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever knocks down the tower of his life so that Christ can rebuild it has found joy. It will be complete in him. So the last scripture I want us to see together is 1 Peter 4. So if you guys would flip over to that, just so you can underline it, mark it, bring it back up this week and study. 1 Peter 4. Picking up in verse 12. Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or as an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 17. For it is the time of judgment to begin at the household of God and it begins with us. What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And the righteous is scarcely saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let him or let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I cannot promise you, actually I, I would go the opposite. I can promise you that if you choose to follow Christ with everything you have, life is not going to get better. That if you choose to knock down your tower for the sake of Christ, life is going to get harder, it's not going to get easier. Suffering is the only thing promised to us. But when we have Christ rebuilding our tower, what, what much more could we ask for? If we have a friend that's closer than a brother, what much more could we ask for? So we've got to understand that this division that he speaks of is a good thing. And here's the best part of it all. This, this division, he did not divide us to leave us. But he clearly said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. I have a death waiting for me. For those that are following me, this death is going to bring them life. So not only do we pull the linchpin, do we leave it all at the feet of Jesus, do we say, because of this division I'm in, but now what we get is Christ and Christ crucified on our behalf. He goes, listen, all your sin, all your shortcomings, all your failings have now been taken upon me on the cross. You're free. You are free now to live as a free man. Your sin is no longer held against you. So how we remember this as a church is almost every single Sunday we stop and we take communion. Because Jesus was in the upper room at this last supper with his disciples saying, listen, within a matter of hours, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be murdered. But here, take this bread. And every time you eat of this, remember these words. Remember me. And here, here's this juice. Every time you sip of this juice, remember me, remember what I'm doing. This makes no sense to you right now. But in three days, everything is going to click. And so often in the midst of our sufferings, nothing makes sense to us, but in three days it's going to click. So some of you might be in the midst of suffering right now, and I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, as you take communion this morning, remember what he promised you. Remember that he's never going to leave you, he's never going to forsake you. Whatever your trial you're going through this morning, it is for your joy. He's either knocking down the tower or he's rebuilding your tower, but either way, it's for your joy. But the other half of the room, we've just been playing this divide for our entire life. And most of us, I'm, I'm not even trying to be brash, most of us, it's just so subconscious to us. 
that we get up, we go to church on Sunday, we know we should do this because we were raised in church and this is the good thing to do, but it's never really clicked for us. So as we're taking communion, my question, my challenge for you would be, did Christ really die for you just to live a nominal life? Did Christ go to the cross so you could keep on looking like the world? Did Christ die on the cross? Was he resurrected from the grave just so that we could still look like the world? Because if so, I don't really understand why he had to die. So on, all, on the communion tables, there's just Jenga blocks. I don't know if you're any, a visual guy like me, but take one with you, put it somewhere, put it on your keychain, just wrestle with this division that God has asked us to do. Maybe God is convicting you right now going, I've played this game for my entire life and this is the morning I pull the linchpin out and let the tower fall and allow God to rebuild me. But if you're anything, you're like me, we, we constantly are rushing back to what the world says is good. And so just having a Jenga block, just to have around, would remind us we should not build our own tower. It's Christ that builds us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then communion is going to be open. Let's just remember all that Christ has done. Uh, you can grab a Jenga block if that helps you. If not, it's fine. But here's just the question I want us to wrestle with. Are we, do we understand the division of Christ and which way are we walking? You're either with him or you're not. Let's get rid of this middle ground. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your truth. Father, thank you that you did come so that we could have life to the full. Even though it doesn't look like we thought it would and Peace comes not by good, but it comes through suffering. God, it's just, it can be confusing to us at times. So Jesus, here's my prayer for this church, for the individuals here. That we would feel and understand and recognize the division of our souls. That if we have never wrestled with what we feel like God is asking us to do, we would look into that. If we've never asked the question, what is your will, Father? What would you have me do? We would consider and ponder which side of the divide we're on. God, my prayer this morning is that we would see we'd see many people pull the linchpin of their control away from their tower this morning and let it fall. God, that we would have communities rally around these people that have unknowingly been playing the game for years. Thinking that Christianity is about me feeling good and my joy and my peace, no matter how I come about that. Father, but your cross teaches us a different message. That there must be judgment, there must be division, but you don't leave us there, that you died for those who have chosen to follow you. And I pray for us as a church that we would pick up our cross and follow you daily.
that we wouldn't be intimidated by the suffering of this world, that we wouldn't be afraid of what we might be perceived or looked upon because of the division. Father, I, I pray that we would look so different. And God, you stuck out like a sore thumb when you sent Christ to this world. People didn't know what to do with you, Jesus. Father, I pray that that would be the same for us. That the same words that were uttered about the early apostles would be uttered about us. That those who have come to turn the world upside down are here. God, I pray that that as crazy stories as we read in the New Testament of apostles being beaten and suffering and come out singing and rejoicing would be our song, would be our story. That we are not intimidated by anything, Father. That if you are for us, then who can be against us? God, would you give us that faith? But it all comes with the division of our soul. Who do we say that you are? So as we wrestle this morning, Father, would we remember who you say that we are? That we are loved. Loved so much so that you went to the cross for us. God, we thank you. We love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we'll continue.